Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. The gate that President Biden is referring to is the Rafah gate. That gate would be between Gaza, is at the end of Gaza, and that gate, uh, the deal to do that was opened by Egypt, where al-Sisi is the president, not of Mexico, but of Egypt. This happened during the press conference where Joe Biden responding to the special counsel report that said, yes, indeed, he had classified documents and willfully took the classified documents and stated that no charges would come because a jury would see him, that's my word, jury, would see him as a elderly man with a poor memory. Going on to say that it took Joe Biden a lot of time to answer questions. Joe Biden was not sure when he was vice president. Joe Biden could not remember within years when his son, Bo Biden, died. And so responding to this, this idea that somehow his mental acuity is right on track, he refers to Al-Sisi as the president of Mexico. But within that commentary was another conversation, one that got kind of brushed over. Joe Biden just said, that Israel's response to the terrorists, Hamas, the murder of 1,300, the setting of children on fire, the raping of women was over the top? And how about the fact that there was a press conference to begin with? Something else that not enough people are discussing. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything I do over at TonyKatz.com. Noah Rothman joins me right now, a senior writer at National Review. His latest book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, that's available at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are, are sold. His latest piece, An Unmitigated Disaster, discussing this press conference. But before we get to that, I want to get to this comment this over-the-top comment, Israel's response, is over-the-top. You heard that, Noah. What was your take of it? Instantly, um, revulsion. That was a grossly irresponsible comment, one that is not reflective of the views of his own administration, um, which hardly inspires confidence in the president's mental acuity. The idea that uh, as you say, Israel is somehow unjustified in its response here, is not an opinion that appears to be shared by his national security spokesman, uh, Admiral John Kirby, who has said on repeated occasions that the extent to which uh, Israel is going to protect civilians, to pull its punches, to telegraph its punches, extend well beyond anything even the United States would do in defense of its interests. 
the effort to uh, introduce humanitarian aid, medical aid, even at the risk of, in fact, the understanding that it will go and fall into Hamas's hands, at least a vast portion of it, but only in order to appease its critics in the West, is something to which no army engaged in an existential conflict with an adversary that wants to eradicate its people would do. The military historian Andrew Roberts, Sir Andrew Roberts, perhaps one of the preeminent military historians of our age, has said that the casualty rate in what is essentially urban combat throughout this very densely populated region amounts to approximately two to one, which is unheard of in the modern era. It's virtually impossible to achieve that level of discrimination. And yet the Israelis have achieved it. So what the president is doing here is giving voice to a fantasy, one that is shared by Israel's fanatical critics, some of whom um, the president counts among his constituencies and who are very upset that Joe Biden is continuing to stand beside Israel in its defensive war against a genocidal terrorist organization. That's unconscionable. And he went on in ways that further degrade America's uh, mission here. I don't know if you have that clip. I think I, I think I do. Let me see if I can continue it here. I talked to I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I've been pushing really hard, really hard to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. There are a lot of innocent people who are starving, a lot of innocent people who are in trouble and dying. And it's got to stop, number one. Number two, I was also in the position that I'm the guy that made the case that we have to do much more to increase the amount of material going in, including fuel, including other items. I've been on the phone with the Qataris. I've been on the phone with the Egyptians. I've been on the phone with the Saudis to get as much aid as we possibly can into Gaza. There are innocent people and innocent women and children who are also in bad, badly need of help. And so that's what we're pushing. And I'm pushing very hard now to deal with this hostage ceasefire because, as a, you know, I've been working tirelessly in this deal. How can I say this without revealing to lead to a sustained pause. So that conversation of a sustained pause, let, let's get to that. But just for the sake of clarity, the numbers that come out from something called the Gazan Health Ministry are numbers from Hamas. They say 27,000 dead. You heard President Biden there talking about women and children dead. When Benjamin Netanyahu spoke about this the other day, he said 20,000 terrorists, Hamas terrorists, were, were, were dead. So it, was it the, the continual utilization of Hamas numbers as somehow they're accurate, or was it uh, going forward in, in that clip um, th- this idea that he keeps pushing Israel, but somehow Israel is obstinate? It's that. Um, he, can, he went on to say that while he's pushing for this um, short-term ceasefire, it is his intention to extend that short-term ceasefire into something indefinite. Um, he thereby revealed to Israel that it has absolutely no interest in and should absolutely reject short-term ceasefires because the president of the United States will use that opportunity to all but uh, foreclose on Israel's military objective, which is the destruction of Hamas. Israel would be insane to agree to any ceasefire at this point, understanding that the president's intention is not to secure any short-term goal, but to put an end to the war entirely. If that was his objective, he utterly sacrificed it with that admission. Previously, as he said, how can I say this without revealing too much? Too late. You blew it. 
Subsequently, as you say about these Hamas figures, the administration proper, not the president, his administration doesn't recognize those figures. Why? Because they're nonsense. Hamas retails numbers that it pulls from the air. The minute there's an, an ordinance explodes somewhere in Gaza territory, this organization, the Hamas uh, Gaza Health Ministry, whatever it calls itself, has pinpoint accurate figures about casualties, all of whom are civilian, and it can identify the women and children among them. And yet we also understand that there is no civilian authority, no military authority left in the Gaza Strip. There's no revision to these numbers, which is quite unlike Israel. Israel initially, after the October 7th massacre, uh, was uh, telegraphing, retailing figures about casualty numbers that ended up being too high, and they revised them downwards weeks after they began identifying some of these bodies, some of which were mangled beyond recognition. That's what a responsible, transparent state does. They actually retail numbers that make sense and have some backing. And if they're wrong, they're revised, sometimes downward. That is not something you can say about the Hamas Health Ministry, because it has no interest in real figures, real numbers. It broadcasts propaganda. And those who reiterate that propaganda, who disseminate that propaganda, are advancing Hamas's objectives. The Biden administration doesn't do that. Joe Biden does. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, his latest book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun, available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. You have the piece over at National Review, an unmitigated disaster, and you saw, I, I think you beat me to the punch on, on, on social because I spend less time uh, writing on, on, on X and more time just yelling you. at my phone. Uh, <laughs> the story here, Regarding the Joe Biden press conference, isn't as much the special counsel report, which is pretty damn damning. It is the idea that the White House was so absolutely terrified of it that they risked putting Joe Biden on primetime television at 8 p.m. True or false? Uh, obviously true. In fact, there's a theory that I, I kind of am partial to, but it's just a theory that this is all Joe Biden's idea because it was so spectacularly ill-advised and ineptly executed that who else could conceive of it? No other practiced political figure with an interest in their own pres preserving their own career would have advised this flurry of activity in which the president engaged in conspicuous activity, especially a press conference after 8 p.m., the guy's hours are well known to be 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Outside that window, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. And that's exactly what we got. Joe Biden could have used this report, damning though it was, as a springboard. The report was, was very critical of his mental faculties, And that would have hurt. But the president could have waved it off and allowed the expectations to be set very, very low for him. So that in a week or two, I think it's a week and a half, when he has a State of the Union address, he could more than beat those expectations by being well-rested, by delivering a speech on a teleprompter to the letter, and therefore have basked in the glory of the media's desire, desperate desire, to undermine the conclusions in Robert Hur's report. Instead, because they were so terrified and so insecure in their candidate, they went out and communicated in no uncertain terms how absolutely scared to death they are of its conclusions and sought to refute them in the worst possible way. The report maintains that Joe Biden is a well-meaning, friendly, affable, decrepit old man. Joe Biden took to the stage in order to and was 
determined to refute those that you know that condition that that assertion but he didn't refute the decrepit part all he managed to refute was the affable part he presented the most cantankerous face he could possibly muster to the american people he looked irritated he was bewildered he was uh, aggravated and he was very uh, hostile to a press which was acting which was asking with the exception of peter Ducey, not exceptionally pointed questions but he could not abide it he was trying to demonstrate something like engagement, but what came off was just churlishness in a way that was very off-putting. If there was an objective here, it was not met. To that end, let me share this with you. This is from MSNBC. Willie Geist asking the question to Congressman Dan Goldman on Morning Joe, where, and I, I will say this, you don't have to agree or disagree with me, Noah. Years ago, Noah Rothman was a regular on that show, and it was the intellectual morning show. Noah has since moved on to better things, and Lord only knows what has happened to Joe Scarborough. I say it, I mean it, Noah, so help me God, I say it when you're with me or when you're not on, on, on the show. I can't believe what has happened with that program. I want you to hear Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Even some Democrats cringing a little because it raises an issue that's been out there. Do you have any concerns at all? not just because of what we read in this report, which a lot of uh, people on this show don't think should have been in the report, but do you have concerns right now about President Biden's age as it moves toward the general election? No, I don't have any concerns, and, and that's from personal interactions. Um, he's got a, a terrific team around him. He is very knowledgeable and experienced, um, and he has even recently um, completely dominated the Republicans. You look at the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Uh, he did a fabulous job. And my understanding is that he was behind the scenes and with because of his experience negotiating over so many different years, uh, he knew exactly where the negotiation was going to go. And he took Kevin McCarthy's shirt. There's a real question, Noah, about Will Democrats circle the wagons? In this, Dan Goldman has never found a sword that he won't fall on. It actually looks like he's taking place in a, a taking a part in a hostage video, the way he looks in, in, in this piece. Democrats really willing to circle the wagons around Joe Biden at this stage? Well, first, let me say that I appreciate your compliment, and I bear no ill will to my friends on MSNBC or Morning Joe. I think it's a fantastic program. It was when I was there, and it still is. And to be fair to Democrats, you can make the case that Robert Hur's assessment of Joe Biden's mental acuity was ill-placed in a recommendation against prosecution. Why? Because there was never, ever going to be any prosecution of the sitting president. If he had recommended indictment, it wouldn't have gone through until the president was out of office. This is an academic exercise. So why introduce that? The reason why you introduce that is because Robert Hur's assessment here is that there would not be a successful prosecution of prosecutable violations of the law because of the president's mental faculties. He would present a sympathetic case. That's necessary to include in this report if it's a comprehensive report and not a snow job, which is what Democrats certainly would have preferred. They didn't get it. Um, to the extent that Dan Goldman is rallying around the president is only because they have no option. They have no choice. The party isn't going to abandon their incumbent president. I just, it's just not going to happen. There's some sort of fantasy that there's going to be a 1968-style intervention in the convention that would overturn all the votes, all the pledged delegates, everything would go right out the window, and Democrats will replace the whole ticket, because Kamala's got to go too, obviously, right? 
the memory of that, the institutional memory of that within the Democratic coalition is 1968. And 1968 didn't go well for the party. Um, they're not going to repeat it. So the party has very little options here other than to um, polish this apple in ways that uh, that are electorally advantageous. It's not convincing to either of us. It ultimately may not be convincing to voters, but they have no other option. Noah Rothman, National Review. We're going to discuss this uh, further, and we might place money on that bet. Um, we're, we might place uh, – honestly, I think you might pay my mortgage on that bet. We're going to discuss this in the future. Noah Rothman, National Review. Check his work there, nationalreview.com. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I am sending 50 Hoosier Guardsmen to the southern border to support the Texas National Guard on their security mission. Those are the words of the Indiana governor, Eric Holcomb, who is showing uh, a little more gumption on this subject than I ever, ever thought. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. These soldiers, writes Governor Holcomb, will begin mobilizing for the mission immediately, and they will arrive in Texas in mid-March. Now, I would ask Governor Holcomb about this, but uh, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't come on the show. I get asked about this all the time. Why don't you have this one? Why don't you have that one? Do you know how many invitations we put out all across the board to all the political parties? Nope. Why? I don't know. I'm, I'm a bad guy? Okay. That's an interesting idea. They're afraid? Also an interesting idea. I have no idea. Maybe they're afraid and I'm terrible. Beats me. All I want to do is hear what they have to say. It's all I want to do. They won't do it. I don't know. Maybe Governor Holcomb will, will, will change his mind here. Maybe, just maybe, he'll decide to talk about it. Either way, I'm glad he's doing it. I'm glad there is support for Texas. Because to support Texas in this conversation about the border is to indeed support America. As we have discussed, and it is so important that it be repeated the people coming across the border are not coming to Texas. They are coming to the United States. They're coming to America. And it's not Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. It is some people looking for a better life. It is some people looking just to feed their families. And it is some very, very dangerous folk. The left never wants to admit to the dangerous folk. But New York shows you that they're dangerous folk. And Chicago shows you that they're dangerous folk. There are well-orchestrated, well-conceived crime rings, theft and the being able to steal from people's Venmo accounts and other things, then the phones get sent uh, to, to South American countries where they're then sold and the money gets shipped back. This is happening all over the place. People are being physically attacked. It's not all good people looking for a better life. And now that we have felt it in other parts of the country, and they're now screaming while still being sanctuary cities, we realize, as we have known, now the country knows that this isn't about Texas, it's about America. So good on Governor Holcomb. Good on those governors 
who actually are with Texas in this fight. And what is the fight for? Rational border legislation, which we really haven't seen yet. I'm Tony Katz. The San Francisco 49ers against Taylor Swift's Kansas City Chiefs. They call it the big game. I mean, they call it something else, but I'm pretty sure I can't say it without getting sued, and I just have no interest. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything I do over at TonyKatz.com. I need to to step away from the uh, political just for a moment. JMV joins us. He is the voice of sports in Indiana, 93.5107.5, the fan in Indianapolis. JMV 1070 on the Xbox. Well, it used to be on the Twitter box. Now it's yeah, on the X. Yeah, I'm excited to see you. It's been too long. I know. I'm in studio in downtown yeah. Indianapolis. Do people not know that? They're aware of this. So I, 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 don't know. Said it. I don't know if they were aware or, okay. or not. Okay, well, they do now, so cat's out of the bag. Came downtown. Of course, the NBA All-Star Game is going to be in Indianapolis. So just Walked around, uh, seeing everything uh, that that's going on, and amazed at how the city of Indianapolis was able to clean up its homelessness issue uh, just in time <laughs> for for the NBA All Star uh, game. I, I do want to discuss it a little bit. I want to discuss the Super Bowl, but can we discuss the Indiana Pacers? I think we should just for a moment. Yes, and the trading of Buddy Hield. Right, and I, it's, I maybe I'm not the most aggressive. Pacers observer in the world. Maybe I'm not the best voice when it comes to basketball in the world. I don't understand this trade at all. And then I watched how the Pacers played against Golden State. Yes. And there was a moment where they wanted to make it a game, and then they said, nah. nah. Exactly. Nah. Yeah. Why this? Why did they trade him to the Well, again, I wasn't a fan of it. However, uh, me, you, in this case, non-fans of this, have to understand that he wasn't coming back. They wanted to get something for him. Didn't want to lose him for absolutely nothing. They're trying to get everything together monetarily to make sure that they can have enough money for Pascal Siakam in his long-term future here. Uh, They don't want to get close to uh, the luxury tax range. So what am I, four or five or six reasons that it makes sense? And honestly, Tony, I don't have much of an argument against that other than I'm okay with the viewpoint down the road. I'm okay with you looking down the road, and and that's your vision. But, man, they have been playing well enough that in the now can also be livable with this group. And in no way, shape, or form, bringing in Doug McDermott or whatever, did you make your team better. What you did is you made it worse when you traded Buddy Heald. I understand why they had to – Frankly, he may not even wanted to stay here. I mean, maybe it was time for him to go. They weren't going to pay him. Did he, show he wanted a you, lot of money. Did you see within him any levels of unhappiness? Uh, just because he was in a slump shooting jumpers. That's it. I couldn't tell anything as far as contractually or you know monetarily not getting offered what he wanted. They weren't going to pay him. They had an offer on the table. I can't remember what the number was, and they never could come to a common ground, the reps for Buddy and the Pacers, thus – Um, this is where we are right now. But considering right now, and I know, again, this is draft capital, which is a phrase I absolutely hate, I loathe. I know it's important, however. They ended up getting a second rounder, and they can utilize that further down the road, and maybe that will make a heck of a lot more sense to me down the road. But living in the moment with this team and what he means to this team, even in a slump, Tony, what he means as a threat offensively that other teams have to prepare for, the Pacers made themselves worse yesterday. I believe that. Yeah. Now, the game against Golden State, 
There was a moment that game was 58-56. That game was tight. And then you turn around at halftime, and Golden State is up by 92,000 points. What yeah. What in the world happened? Well, you can start here. I mean, Steph Curry was going crazy. Um, okay, I understand that. But the problem with the Pacers last night wasn't that. It was they just got out-efforted. They did. Golden State played harder. And, Tony, this is now twice in the last eight days where a team has played significantly harder than this Pacer team. And I can't – that does not go without a high level of criticism. In the second half against the Knicks last week, they got absolutely beat all over the glass on both ends. The Knicks just played harder. And beyond the 42 from Steph Curry that was absolutely vintage last night, Golden State – the second of a back-to-back, got in here at 3 in the morning to the Conrad, right? No sleep, whatever. They just absolutely boat raced the Pacers, and there was little to no resistance. That's what's disappointing. Boat raced? Boat raced. Is that a... I don't know. Is that a thing I'm they from say southern, southern Indiana. Indiana. Pond raced? No. Creek raced? Well, it would be Crick. Crick race. It would be Crick. Yeah, it would. Right Stream Yeah, raced. you see, the problem is you've been in the big city too long. Yeah. Yeah. Talking to JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana, 93.5, The fan is where you find him. Uh, Quick talk about IU. Speaking of uh, basketball programs not doing uh, their their job, of course, they've got the game coming up against uh, Purdue. Uh, They're the number two team in the country, uh, by the way. They squeak by Ohio State. They shamefully lose to Penn State. (laughs) They beat Iowa, but they get, I think, in, in my view, between Illinois and Wisconsin, just ridiculed. Yes. Ridiculed's better than boat raced. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, um, uh, some level of slapped. <laughs> we might want to feel like it. I'm talking to John Lithgow right now. Well, you got ridiculed. I love it, though. The actor John Lithgow? Yes. That's who you're talking yeah, to? Yeah. He seems like if he were talking sports and describing it in that way, he would say, "Ah, you got ridiculed in those two games." See, I don't think you mean John Lithgow. I think that would be more of a Fraser Crane, right? Could be that too. Lithgow, yeah, third no, rock Kelsey Grammer would work. Or yeah, or or the yeah. dad from Footloose. Oh, you know, I was just thinking of you in terms of Footloose. I couldn't right. help myself. Okay, that's 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 how everybody <laughs> thinks of me as the dad from Footloose. When clearly yeah. I'm Chris Penn. Um, this team is 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 this team not have the talent? Or is Mike Woodson not gotten them to believe? It uh, actually, I think both. They don't have the talent, especially in the backcourt. Don't have the guard talent. Don't have the shot making ability that is necessary. They do have some talent, but not enough. And um, Mike Woodson, frankly, has just not been good. I mean, oftentimes, more often than not, he's not been good. And I think you start with putting together this team. They tried to get others through the transfer portal because you knew you're going to lose so much from Trace Jackson Davis, from Jalen Hood Shafino. You're going to lose all that. And they failed with that, and they did not adequately address the backcourt, and that has buried them. But I do want to give props here. And that is to Anthony Leal, the former Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana, who has had two really nice efforts in that game winner against Ohio State on Tuesday night was one of them right here. He should get to start against Purdue in the backcourt. I don't know if Mike Woodson does that. Gabe Cups should go to the bench and Leal should start. But that has been a nice story for a Bloomington kid who's been sitting on the bench, never got any time, finally got that time, and, and really advanced on his opportunity. So that's good to see. But... How should I put this? How would Tony Katz put this? Um, I use going to get ridiculed in West Lafayette tomorrow night. Ridiculed. Oh. 
Because I was going to say they were going to get crick raced. I was going to, I was absolutely going to go, go with that. Um, yeah. th- th- this is not a, a, a fair matchup. I, I agree with you. And if if IU should win, that would be an upset, for really a, a massive one for them. But this Purdue team, um, you have said before, and and I want to see if you're still a believer in this. Anything they do in the in the quote unquote regular season is inconsequential. If you don't get out of the first round of the tournament, that's the bo- that's the ball game. The question I've never asked is is that the end for Matt Painter, coach of Purdue? If there's a first round or second round exit for Purdue after all of this success and the number 1 rankings and having Zach Eady and all of this this skill set that you've built around him, if you don't get out past the second round, is it over for Matt Painter? Matt Painter is going to be there as long as Matt Painter wants to be there. Because that that is the way that it is. Now there'll be a lot of fans, even Boilermaker fans, that'll say, "Hey, you got to go get somebody else." But he's going to be there as long as Matt wants to be there, guaranteed. Talking to JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana. Uh, there, there's a big game. There big is big game, huge game. You can't in- say it though, because I don't want you to get sued. Right? I'm not. I'm not saying it. You got to. You got to buy cigars. It would. It would be super if I did. <laughs> it would just bowl you over. I tell you. See that? That's getting John Lithgow right there. <laughs> See, you like that. Nah. You did like that I, reference I, I, I to really, John Lithgow. I really, I really did. I like it. Uh, you got the San Francisco 49ers. You got the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, you, you, I need to, to, to prognosticate this game for me. Yeah. Uh, is this offensive battle? Is this defensive battle? And who's coming out on top? I think ultimately it's won offensively, but it's not going to be the team you think. I think it's going to be the offense of the Niners that will win this. I think the Niners' offense will step up, and it's weird. I don't know why I think this dynamic is going to come true here on Sunday. I just see Brock Purdy, who has been ridiculed himself quite often, uh, about being you know, the the loose string, if you will, on the guitar of a very good 49ers team. I think he steps up and makes plays. I think offensively, the Niners make too many plays. Defensively, I think that's a team that can shake up Patrick Mahomes a little bit. So I think with that, it happens. And my final is 31-28 to 28 San Fran on Sunday. What, what makes win. you think that, that Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, he's the last guy in the draft that was picked. Yep. Uh, he's now and, and he got injured in the NFC Championship game last year. That arm injury came back from that and now has them in this place. What makes you think that this is Purdy's time to go full beast mode? I think that he has, between Debo Samuel and uh, Brandon Ayuk and Christian McCaffrey, I think that those weapons will support him. And it may end up being, Tony, a situation where Debo Samuel just plays better or, or Christian McCaffrey has a better game. It's always the MVP seemingly going to the quarterback. So he's going to reap the benefits of that. Also of a defense that can just put pressure, and I think pressure that is necessary on Mahomes, I just think that's going to be a little bit too much. So now let me give you two things. Yeah. First, I notice when you talk about the 49ers offense, you do not mention George Kittle. Which I, and can I should, understand I because, should, I but Kittle has been yeah. absent throughout uh, throughout the the past couple of games. Absent, he has not been around. Purdy isn't interested in the checkdown, or there's too many uh, I, wide receiver weapons. I think that they're just fine with the other weapons. You know, the ones that I mentioned, Brandon Ayuk, for example, the other wide receiver 
who um, I think he's going to be a free agent coming up, which is interesting in terms of what the Colts may need. I'm sure they're not going to look at it. But anyway, he is a good supporting act to help out Purdy. And you're right. I, sh- I should have mentioned, you know, tight end position, right? I just think this is going to come down more to the weapons, including him, that Purdy's going to use, and that I think he's going to be the MVP and the Niners are going to win. I just combination of both offense and defense, it's tough for me to go against the Niners the way that it looks, Tony. The other side of it is, is that you got Patrick Mahomes getting past the Buffalo Bills and the Baltimore Ravens, yes. who should be in this Super Bowl. Everybody had the Baltimore Ravens, and all of a sudden they decided to not engage in yep. the offense whatsoever. I have now watched multiple teams not remember that Travis Kelsey is on the field, which seems impossible. That guy gets open every second of every single game. How many guys does it take? I mean, are, who, who's shadowing him to ensure that that doesn't happen. Well, I mean, you can look to the Niners if you're going to, I guess, the tail of the tape on their linebackers, starting with Fred Warner, is as good, if not the best in the NFL, certainly as good as anybody. I I think you can start right there. I, I just, to me, it's not even so much that, Tony, as it is, you know, being able to have guys consistently rush the quarterback without a lot of blitzing. I think that's important. And the one thing... You can rattle anybody. I mean, Patrick Mahomes can be rattled, too. Consistent pressure will do that. And I think the Niners have the potential defensively to do just that against Mahomes. I mean, otherwise, you're right. I mean, going on the road and winning those games and the fashion in which Kansas City has has been incredibly impressive. I just happen to think it ends with a Niner team that's, I think, just a little bit, as far as both sides of the football, better than what Kansas City can have to offer. Before I let you go, JMV, you bring up the Indianapolis Colts. Dwight Freeney. Yes. The NFL Hall of Fame, the pass rusher uh, extraordinaire, the spin move constantly and consistently. What was it, 125 sacks? Did he? Yeah, he got 107 and a half sacks when he was with Indianapolis. 17 year career, 125 and a half sacks, 18th in NFL history. He's in. Reggie Wayne is not your take. Um, I think Reggie deserves to be in, and it stinks he has to wait, but Dwight Freeney absolutely deserved to be in. And I think Showbiz can look this up. Even more impressive than the stats you just rattled off from Freeney. Showbiz would be producer Carl, by the way, everybody. Showbiz Showbiz trying to figure out who Dwight Freeney is, I understand right now. But no, no, Dwight Freeney, I think, had 47 strip sacks in his career. I mean, when we recognize, I mean, truly recognize the strip sack, and I know that it had more of an impact here with him, that's when we really started to recognize it. I mean, that was the spin move was one thing. Uh, the strip sack, I think, was what was most impressive. Those are game-changing moments that everybody wants. Think about around here, Tony, how long this Colts team has been trying to replace him or replace Robert Mathis. It has simply been forever. And the strip sack, I think, is at the top of that list. And also recognize when Bo- Bill Polian drafted him out of Syracuse, um, it was widely panned. NFL experts said he's too small to play. Why did you draft this guy? Six he can't one. play. And uh, Bill and Dwight Freeney and the Colts kind of shoved that up, you know, where with everybody around there that were naysayers. He has just been fantastic. And, you know, you look up the strip sack, you look at the game-changing moments. He had a lot of them. Reggie Wayne, I predict, gets in next year. Joining a Reg, uh, joining a Dwight Freeney, Julius Peppers. Yeah. Patrick Willis of the 49ers. Andre Johnson of the Texans, which is an interesting one, and Devin Hester. Yeah. 
the the punt returns. It's insane. He's a game changing punt returner, though. He was. I think Hall Adam Vinatieri Hall is, of Fame worthy. Yeah, yeah. I think he's Hall of Fame worthy. I, maybe not at this moment. You could have waited a minute, probably. But I think ultimately, because of the impact he had on that position, special teams, which now widely we don't even care too much about, but I definitely think so. Next year, Adam Vinatieri, I think, is eligible. He should be a first ballot guy. JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana, 93.5, 107.5, the fan. Always appreciate you. He's picking the Niners over uh, the Chiefs. I'm Tony Katz. White House right now. Uh, it is uh, they, they've got the uh, press briefing, and they are just apoplectic about the special counsel's report, and really upset that this report that says that yes, Joe Biden did have classified information, willfully had it, but no charges will be filed because uh, Joe Biden is an elderly man with poor memory. I mean, that's what they that's what they said. And what the White House is upset with is that this report was made public. It got made public only because, as William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, pointed out, the Attorney General said they could. That's Merrick Garland. So now they're being asked whether or not Biden's going to fire Merrick Garland, and the White House refuses to say. Oh, grab your bourbon. It's going to be a good weekend. Are you kidding? What I love is they brought uh, Ian Sams out. He is the White House Counsel's uh, uh, spokesperson. They're not saving this for Corinne Jean-Pierre. They don't want her anywhere near this. They need professionals. Woo! I'll try and bring you some of the presser. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz.